why did God put us here on earth? And if he did put us here, can we really know him? Can people like us have fellowship with him? Is there any sense we could sit down and have a meal with God? Would he allow that kind of personal intimacy? And if we could have that kind of fellowship, how do people like us who are busy and just trying to get by, raising kids, working jobs, how do we make time for that kind of fellowship with God? How do we do that when we're suffering or stress? If we could answer those questions in a sermon series, that seems like a great way to start a new year, doesn't it? And so that's why we're turning to the book of Leviticus. If we had a better production team, we would have a record scratch right there. Leviticus has the reputation of being the place where the New Year's Bible reading plan goes to die. It's full of repetitive rules with obscure rituals that don't seem relevant to our lives. It has none of the major events of Genesis and Exodus, and it really has almost no narrative at all. And the stories it does tell are about mainly people getting killed for breaking God's law. So can studying Leviticus really tell us how to have fellowship with God? Well, this morning we're just going to dip our toes into the water of Leviticus by looking at the first two verses. And these first two verses tell us two things. But these two things are hugely crucial for the work that God is doing to save his people. Here, here are the two things. First, God calls people to draw near to him. And God, second, God reveals to his people the pathway to fellowship with him. Here are those two things again. God calls sinners to come near. God tells them the way to fellowship with him. The story of God's saving work that we see in Genesis and Exodus has been leading to this point, to God calling his people to come near and God telling them how to have fellowship with him. Before I launch into that first point, God calls sinners to come near, I want you to see how we get to those two things from just these first two verses of the book of Leviticus. So again, you can find these on page 81 of the Bibles provided. Listen to God's word from Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. First notice that Leviticus begins with God calling to Moses. If you had a copy of the Hebrew Bible in front of you, you would see that and he called is the title in Hebrew of this book. My Hebrew pronunciation is not good, but the Hebrew word sounds something like vayikra, which means and he called. The headline of Leviticus is that God speaks from the tent of meeting. And you can see how the speech of God is really emphasized in the first verse by three different words used to refer to God speaking. 
The Lord called and spoke, saying. And those three words will be repeated again as God calls to Moses and speaks and says, and then he tells Moses to speak something. And this speaking of God here in Leviticus is all the more important because of the way Exodus ends. Exodus ended with a crisis. Much of Exodus chapters 25 through 40 is taken up with instructions for building the tabernacle and then the building of the tabernacle. It was, it was supposed to be the dwelling place of God on earth. And in Exodus 40, verse 34, Moses has just completed finishing the tabernacle. He's built the altar and he's set up a screen that functions as kind of gate into the tabernacle there on the eastern doorway. But when Moses did that, it's almost as if Moses built that screen and then locked himself out of the tabernacle. Listen to Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That sounds like good news. But then listen to this. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, Moses has been Israel's mediator to God throughout their sojourn on, the, on Mount Sinai. He had been up at the top of Mount Sinai in the midst of the glory cloud of Yahweh meeting with Yahweh. He had interceded for Israel when they sinned with the golden calf. The only reason they've gotten to this point is because of Moses' access to God, his ability to fellowship with God directly. But as we end Exodus, even Moses, the mediator, he can't go into the tabernacle. And the text says the specific reason he can't go in is because God is there. God's glory has filled the place, and so Moses can't get in. And so it kind of raises the question, why did they even build this thing? Was it the whole point for them to fellowship with God, but they can't get in? It's almost like they've been kicked out of the Garden of Eden again. They can't get into the place where God dwells. And that's why it's so important that Leviticus begins with the words, and Yahweh called. If you're using the ESV, the ESV obscures the word and. It doesn't include it. But if you read an older translation, you'll hear the word that's there in Hebrew. So like the King James Version begins, and the Lord spoke to Moses. So Leviticus 1.1 is a continuation of this narrative that Exodus ended with. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So there is still hope because God is speaking from the tent. And what does God say to Moses then? God has a message for Moses to give to the children of Israel. And it's an invitation to come near. The ESV uses the phrase bring an offering. But I want you to listen to how the Old Testament scholar Michael Morales explains it. He says that the term offering is built from the Hebrew root, which means to draw near. So let me just pause the quote there, emphasize that. What he's saying is behind the English word offering is a Hebrew root that means to draw near. So there's a play on words in this verse emphasizing coming near to God. The quote continues. Leviticus 1-2 uses this root four times, stating... 
When anyone brings near an offering to Yahweh, you shall bring near your offering. While Exodus had closed with the inaccessibility of God in his dwelling, Leviticus opens with divine legislation aimed at allowing Israel to draw near. To draw near, bringing the things that draw them near. God's voice from the tabernacle calls Israel to come near by bringing him offerings from their flocks and herds. The tabernacle sacrifices are the way to fellowship with God. God's giving them the key that unlocks the door to his presence. So those are our two points. God calls sinners to come near and God tells them the way to fellowship with him. That's the message of Leviticus. Fellowship with God has been the goal of God's creating and saving work in Genesis and Exodus. And now we see how this is possible. People can come near to God and they can fellowship with him by offering a blameless sacrifice. And this isn't only true for Old Testament Israel. This message is true for us too. So let's look at this first part of Leviticus' message. God calls sinners to come near. This call of God to come near implies that people are far away. There is some separation, there's some barrier keeping people from fellowship with God. And if you read Genesis and Exodus, you can see how this is indeed the case. But I wonder if you've paid attention to how far people are from God, and then how closely he invites us in. To really understand this idea of nearness and farness, we really have to go back to the very beginning. So our history, human history, begins in Genesis with God creating people and God creating people for nearness with him. He creates us to have fellowship with him. So Adam and Eve were created in God's image to enjoy life-giving fellowship with God. In the creation account, we often note how man is kind of the crown of creation. He's created last and more words are spent on him than the other creatures. And he is said to be created in God's image. But we often don't really know what to do with the seventh day. But it seems that the, the point of the seventh day is to highlight the fellowship man is to have with God. So after the sixth day, we read this in Genesis 2, verses 1 and 2, or verses 2 and 3. God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. He blessed the seventh day and called it holy. This is the only thing that's called holy in the book of Genesis, is this day, this seventh day. And the emphasis on the holiness and blessedness of the seventh day suggests that the point of God making man was that so human beings could enjoy holy, blessed life in God's presence. So they could enter into that seventh day blessedness with their holy God. We catch another glimpse of the nearness to God that Adam and Eve enjoyed after they'd sinned. So in Genesis 3, 8, and 9, we read this. And Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Notice the garden is a place where God moves freely about his creation among his creatures. The text kind of implies this was just a normal part of a day in life in the garden, that God walked freely about and he he spoke to his people. They lived in the presence of God. They spoke with him. If you read carefully, you never see God moving this freely about his people in the rest of the Old Testament. This is why it's right to think of the Garden of Eden as a kind of original temple of God. It's the place where God's presence dwelled on earth. And so Adam is a kind of a priest king in God's holy temple garden. He enjoyed unmatched fellowship with God as he worked and kept the garden temple. Those two words, worked and kept, are important because we'll see that the priests work and keep the tabernacle. This fellowship that Adam and Eve enjoyed in God's holy garden is is what people are made for. Why are we here? It's this. God made us to be in fellowship with him, to walk with him, to hear from him. This is what we were made for. But man's sin destroys this intimacy. After Adam and Eve sinned, God expelled them from the garden And he placed a cherubim, a heavenly creature, at the eastern gate of the garden, wielding a fiery sword. I want you to remember that image. The eastern gate to God's presence is guarded by fire and a cherubim. This flaming barrier keeps humankind from the life-giving presence of God. That's why it's right to say that Adam and Eve experience a kind of spiritual death outside God's presence. Do you see how far they've fallen all of a sudden? They're so far away from God now. And the distance only gets worse. So we all know the story of what happened with Adam and Eve's first sons. Their son Cain kills their son Abel. And listen to what Cain does after he sinned and was confronted by God in Genesis 4.16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The Hebrew word Nod means wandering. He just went, went off wandering out east. That direction is a bad direction, right? Adam and Eve are expelled east of the garden. And where does Cain go? He just keeps wandering to the east trying to make his own way away from the presence of the Lord. It's interesting to see that the Garden of Eden here is still kind of a reference point. Eden and the presence of the Lord are reference. Cain Cain leaves those places to go elsewhere. And some scholars even speculate that Cain and Abel, when they went to offer their sacrifices, went to the gate of the garden where the cherubim was, and that's where they made their offerings. But the point here is to show the increasing distance between God and sinners. Further away from the presence of the Lord, further east. Our sin radically separates us from God's presence. We see this spiritual geography at work throughout Genesis and Exodus. In God's presence, there is life. 
But away from God's presence, there's death and destruction. It's the difference between a, a lush, fruitful garden with good things to eat and a barren wasteland. That's where sin puts us. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and that we are far off from God. Paul understood the spiritual geography of Genesis. Notably, Genesis 1 through 11, that first section, we sometimes call it the, the primeval history, it ends in Babylon, a place far to the east of God's land, Israel. It ends in Babylon, and it ends with people trying to create their own way, trying to create a new gate to heaven, but apart from trusting in the Lord. That's where the first section of Genesis ends, but the whole book of Genesis ends with Joseph, kind of the greatest patriarch, in a sense, in a coffin in Egypt. Not a good place to be. Egypt is often associated with Sheol, the place of the dead. We can see from all this sort of geography that the main, one of the main points of the history of Genesis is that sin leads to death. Because of sin, we are very far away from God. And we're powerless to overcome this distance on our own. We can no more bring ourselves to God than the dead can raise themselves. In our sin, we are far from God. And there's nothing we can do to make up that distance do you know that your sin separates you from God? It may help to remember what sin is. Adam and Eve chose to be ruled by their own desires and to trust in their own wisdom instead of obeying God's command. That is sin. Their good and wise God had given them the garden and it was full of good things to eat and he had forbidden them to eat of this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. He did this because he loved them and he knew what was best for them. He knew what was best for their holiness and their happiness. But when Eve saw that the tree was good to eat, that it was desirable, that it would make her wise, she took, ate, and she died spiritually. Think about this question. Do you think that you know best? Is it normal in your life just to do whatever it is that pleases you? That's the way our world tells us to live. Each person's supposed to figure out their version of right and wrong. Each person's to do what they want to do, and everyone should stay out of each other's business. God doesn't really fit into that picture. But this is the essence of sin. To talk about sin this way is not to say that everyone is as evil as they could possibly be. It's not to demonize you or anyone else. As I speak, I include myself. We all include ourselves in this. If we profess to be Christians, we're saying we also, by nature, worship ourselves. We also, by nature, rebel against God's rules and we do what we want. We follow our own wisdom. Just like Adam and Eve, we are all sinners. And just like Adam and Eve, we're all separated from God, the source of true life, because of our sin. Our sin has left us all spiritually dead. Do you see the distance between you and God?
The only one who can overcome this distance is God himself. That's why the opening verses of Leviticus are such amazingly good news. God calls to sinful people, people who are far off to come near. The only reason these Israelites are gathered around the tabernacle is because God called them, right? There's nothing special about them. Just a few chapters earlier into Exodus, they had sinned with the golden calf. And yet here they are, God's calling to them. The only hope for a people who are dead in their sins is that the holy God, the creator of life, should call them out of sin and death. And that's exactly what God does. Now this call that we see in Leviticus is kind of like the the mountaintop call after a series of calls of God that began back in the garden. Remember, after Adam and Eve sinned, what does God do while he's walking in the cool of the day? He calls to them. Where are you? Even that question is full of hope. Even as he curses them, he pronounces that someone will come, a man born of a woman who will conquer their enemy. And then after that primeval history, Genesis 1 through 11, God calls Abraham. When he was called Abram. He called him out of Ur to go west to the land of Canaan. When Abraham's children were slaves to Pharaoh down in Egypt, God heard their cries, and then he called to Moses out of the burning bush. He rescued them through the waters of death, and he brought them to Mount Sinai. He brought them up out of Sheol into his presence. Listen to how God brings far-off people close to him in Exodus chapter 19, verse 2 and following. It says, They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God rescued this people from sin and death, and he called them to be his treasured possession. He called this sinful people to be a holy people. Sin separates us from God, but because God is gracious, he resolved to overcome that separation. Salvation begins with this gracious call of God, and it's completed as God powerfully works to bring us to himself. Isn't it good to know the God who calls sinners? I don't know about you, but my instinct usually is if I face with a difficult person to try to find a way to ignore them. And if a person really has sinned against me and they're, they're in my face with, with sin, then my instinct is to punish them. Praise God that he is not like me. God didn't abandon us in our sin. He came and called. He calls us to come to him. Specifically, he calls us through Jesus. Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus died for sinners and he overcame death so that we who are far away from God 
are brought near. So just like God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, he delivers sinners from slavery to sin and death through Jesus' work. It's through Jesus he calls us to be his treasured possession, to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Jesus overcame the chasm between the life in God's holy presence and our sin, the death of this world. By faith in Jesus, sinners are forgiven and brought near to God. We're all well acquainted with the weariness of sin. It saps you of all your life. It leaves you lost like Cain, scrapping for some security and meaning in your life away from God's presence. But in Jesus, there is life. If we'll turn away from trying to rule ourselves, living for our own desires, and receive the salvation that he purchased, we can have fellowship with God. That's what we were made for. Do you know the God who calls sinners? If you want to know him, look to Christ. He didn't come to punish you for all the ways you messed up. He doesn't scold. He came to take on the punishment that our sin deserves by dying on the cross. If you would come to God who calls sinners, repent of your sin and trust in Christ. Jesus calls those who are weary and weighed down by sin to come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. God calls sinners to come to him. But not only does he call sinners, he also tells us the way to fellowship with him. That's the second part of Leviticus 1, 1 and 2. God tells people the way to fellowship with him. Let me read that second verse again. When anyone brings near an offering to Yahweh, you shall bring near your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. In seed form, this verse tells us that the way to fellowship with God is through the tabernacle sacrifices. Remember, God's voice is speaking from the newly built tabernacle. This tabernacle that not even Moses can enter because God's glory has filled the place. But he's telling them how they can enter. The people must come to the gate of the tabernacle with an animal from their herd to offer God on his holy altar. This is the way he's ordained for sinful people to come near to him. There's two things I want you to see from this tabernacle, the symbolism of the tabernacle. First, the tabernacle symbolism is all about people dwelling in God's presence. So when we learn about the tabernacle in Exodus and Leviticus, we're not meant to just kind of file away some religious trivia. We're meant to see what it means to fellowship with God. Again, this is the goal of creation itself. God made man to fellowship with him. The image of God dwelling happily with his holy God in the garden. And that's the goal of the tabernacle too. The tent was embroidered with garden images to evoke the Garden of Eden itself. 
And remember, I told you, I wanted you to remember that image of the cherubim at the eastern gate of the garden holding a flaming sword. That's essentially the layout of the, of the, of the tabernacle. So at the gate of the most holy place, the, the westernmost portion of the tent of meeting, was the, gate, that, the gate of that place was a veil embroidered with a cherubim. It's like a sign saying, this way to enter the new Garden of Eden. This is where God's presence is. That's the place where the priest would go once a year on the Day of Atonement, and he would meet with God. That's the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, the throne room of God himself. In the next chamber to the east of the most holy place, there was the holy place, and that was a place where there was a lampstand shining on a table with 12 loaves of bread. And those 12 loaves of bread represented the 12 tribes of Israel. This picture of a light shining on the bread was a, a picture of God's people dwelling in the light of God's glory. Light is a really important symbol of God's favor on his people. Just like the light and the warmth of the sun makes plants to grow, so God's people flourish in the light of his glory. I think that's essential to see what holiness is all about in God's word. It's not about God being strict and severe. It's about life. Holiness is about life for God's people. In the easternmost court of the tabernacle or the outer court, there was the altar. And on that altar, there was supposed to be a never-ending flame, a flame that was never extinguished. It symbolized the glory of God. A glory that purged sin through judgment. This is the fire where Israel's sacrifices were consumed. And, and as they were consumed, they were turned into smoke that drifted up to heaven. And it was a pleasing aroma to God. As we'll see next week, that's a repeated refrain. That as you offer these sacrifices, as they're burned up, they become a pleasing aroma to God. The tabernacle is all about the presence of God. It's about taking the worshiper from the wilderness into God's presence. So we see that God's way through the tabernacle was a reversal of the sinful journey man took from Genesis 1 through 11. Instead of going east like Cain, away from the presence of God, the tabernacle draws the worshiper west towards the Lord's presence. It drew God's people in from the wilderness to the very gates of the new Eden, where God dwelled. But to enter the tabernacle and have fellowship with God, the worshiper has to pass through the fire of God and the cherubim at the gate of the Holy of Holies. And this gets us to the second major part of the tabernacle's symbolism. Entrance to God's presence requires the shedding of blood. Unholy and impure sinners cannot enter God's presence without the shedding of blood. Now, in his mercy and goodness, God does not require worshipers to kill themselves or make human sacrifices like the false gods of the Canaanites did. But he made it clear that their sin deserves death. So God ordained that the people bring an animal that would be their personal substitute their representative. So God's people, the worshiper, would enter God's presence vicariously by offering one from their flocks and herds. 
Part of the order of worship was for the the one bringing the sacrifice to to lay his hand on the animal. And the verb seems to indicate that he was to press down hard as if he's putting his imprint on the animal saying, this animal represents me. So the worshiper is to bring this animal and the Lord specifies again and again, it's supposed to be an animal without blemish. The scholar Michael Morales observes that the word translated without blemish when it's applied to animals is the same word that's translated blameless when applied to people. So I'm sure at some point we're going to have Psalm 15:1 as an Old Testament reading. Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? It's the blameless man. The man who is without blemish. So this animal who is offered to God shows the way back to Eden. The blameless worshiper must pass through the flame of the altar where God's fire burns. But the blameless animal must first be killed. Its blood poured out. Depending on the severity of the sin and the the offender, the blood might be just poured out by the altar or it might be taken into the holy place and the blood splattered on that veil where the cherubim was. On the Day of Atonement, the blood was brought into the Holy of Holies itself. The blameless animal would then be put on the altar and burned, and its death then represents the proper judgment that sin deserves. The tabernacle sacrifices showed Israel that their sin separated them from God, but that God had provided a way of atonement through sacrifice. Despite how bloody this ordeal was, it does represent good news because it proclaims that once sin is paid for, the worshiper could have fellowship with God. Through the ministry of God's holy priests who serve in the tabernacle the way Adam did in the garden, the worshiper is brought into God's presence by way of this substitute animal. Again, the smoke of the sacrifice ascended to God as a pleasing aroma. It goes up the way Moses went up the mountain to God. The worshiper's substitute is kind of transported or transferred by fire into the very presence of God. The concluding part of a tabernacle service, which seemed to include a series of offerings, was the peace offering. In the peace offering, the worshiper actually ate a portion of the animal. So maybe he brought his family to offer this peace offering and they they all ate together. And it's as if after having entered the presence of God, God lays the spread before them. And they all eat this now holy animal together. They feast at God's table. Fellowship follows sacrifice. It's important to see though, this tabernacle that God commissioned and had them build wasn't just a symbol God's presence really dwelled there. His glory filled the place. And the instructions of Leviticus are like the key that unlocks the door to the tabernacle. God's way requires sacrifice. The way to fellowship is sacrifice. This way culminates in God's people dwelling in the light of his glorious presence. When, blameless, when the blameless sacrifice is offered, God forgives sin and he fellowships with his people. The tabernacle is a real reversal of humankind's plight. Whenever we recite 
the benediction from number 6, 24 through 26, which I think is the benediction today. No, not today. Maybe next week. But that's the ironic benediction that was supposed to conclude a service of offering at the tabernacle. The priest would come out and raise his hand and he would speak those words. May the Lord's face shine upon you. May you live in the, the grace and favor of the Lord. That's where tabernacle worship was supposed to conclude. With Israel living in the light of God's favor, fellowshipping with their God. No longer are they separated from God. God dwells with his people. What's important to note here is that because of Leviticus, God dwells with his people in a way he has not since man's expulsion from the garden. All of God's dwelling that he's done so far has been appearing to Moses in the burning bush or speaking to Abraham. But now it's just in, this, in this sustained way. He's there in the camp. The Israelites have access to God. They can bring their sacrifices at any time. The tabernacle's promise of forgiveness and fellowship are real. But they are limited. They're limited in the way that so much of the symbolism of the tabernacle was hidden to everyday Israelites. The only way your average Israelite knows of what goes on in the holy place or the most holy place is the same way you and I do right now. They heard about it when Leviticus was read in their hearing. Only a few select priests could enter the tabernacle and, and only one priest in a kind of generation could go into the Holy of Holies, the high priest. And he could only go there once a year. As great as the blessings of God's presence and fellowship of the tabernacle was, it's a far cry from God freely walking about in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Another problem with the tabernacle is that these sacrifices only provided temporary forgiveness. If you sinned and you offered your sacrifice and you went away and on the way home you stubbed your toe and cursed the Lord, you have to come back again and offer another sacrifice. The Day of Atonement, that's kind of the high, the high feast, it was a yearly requirement to confess Israel's sin. And this leads to yet another problem. The tabernacle itself, the place of meeting, the, this holy place, required repeated cleansing. It was gradually polluted by Israel's sin. Part of the purpose of the yearly Day of Atonement was to purify the whole tabernacle and all of its fixtures. And as we'll see in a couple weeks, the, the reason for the Day of Atonement in, in part is because of the sin of Nadab and Abihu. So in chapter 10, they sin and are in the tabernacle by bringing strange fire and they're, they're cursed and they die immediately inside the tabernacle. There's death in God's tent. And so it has to be purified in chapter 16 of the Day of Atonement. So there's always the threat that if Israel abuses the worship of God, God will abandon the tabernacle. And this doorway to heaven is permanently shut. And that's where Israel's history ultimately ends. The tabernacle way was the good gift of a loving God. It offered real forgiveness and fellowship, but the fellowship it offered was limited. Its cleansing was temporary. And this way back to God was always in danger of being permanently closed by sin. As Paul would put it, 
This all shows us that the tabernacle was a teacher meant to lead us to Jesus. The promise of the tabernacle is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus himself is the tabernacle. God took on flesh and tabernacled among us in Christ. Jesus is the new Adam. He's a a holy priest who dwells in God's house, who brings us to God. Jesus is the blameless sacrifice who perfectly pays for our sin. His blood is better than the blood of bulls and goats because it takes away sin once and for all. Jesus is the true Israelite who perfectly kept God's law. There are no false motives in Jesus that would pollute or denigrate his worship. The promises of God in Jesus are better than the promises of God in the tabernacle. Because no matter how great our sin is, we cannot defile Jesus or undermine his work. Those whose sins are covered by Jesus' blood can come boldly to the throne of grace. Jesus clothes us in his righteousness. It's like we're wearing his priestly robes so that we can stand upright in God's presence. Leviticus points us to Jesus as the way to have fellowship with God. The tabernacle dramatically showed the Israelite worshiper that the wages of sin is death. Their unblemished lamb or goat or whatever had to die, had to be sacrificed on the altar. How much more does the death of Jesus show us this? For our sin to be paid for, Jesus had to die. Do you know the depth of your sin? Does it grieve you? The scriptures tell us there's an important difference between true grief over sin and false grief. False grief is annoyed at sin because it reminds us of how weak we are. False grief is mad or sad that we got caught in our sin and have to deal with the consequences. But true grief for sin begins with knowing the goodness and the glory of God, that he's our good God that desires fellowship with us, and we've forsaken his good way to satisfy our own desires. True grief understands that the just penalty for sin, the thing that we deserve and that God would be right to do with us, would be to damn us to hell. True grief of sin begins there. We deserve to be driven east of Eden, to be driven into the wilderness, to the realm of death. Do you have that kind of grief for sin? Do you agree with God against yourself that you deserve judgment? The death of Christ, the perfect Son of God, calls us to this kind of godly grief over sin. But we're not meant to be left in that grief because the death of Christ promises life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. God promises that all who come to God through him will receive forgiveness of sin and fellowship with God. When we come to Christ by faith, who is the true tabernacle, we can come right into the presence of God. This is the promise of the gospel. This is the eternal life that the gospel holds out to us. Fellowship with God. 
It's not limited. It's not hidden. It's not it hindered in any way. This is the fellowship of God dwelling in each Christian by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus purchased for us. The way of Jesus leads us to intimacy with God that cannot be shaken. Brothers and sisters, do you see the greatness of God's blessing in Jesus? He calls us to come near and he shows us the way. Jesus took the punishment that we deserved. Jesus passed through the flame of God's judgment and his offering was a perfectly pleasing aroma to God. So we don't have to despair anymore because of our sin. Jesus took it on himself. The blameless Lamb of God has taken it away outside the camp. So nothing can separate us from God's love. Christian, you are loved by God for Christ's sake. He's not absent from the painful details of your life. He's with you. Because you are his in Christ, God prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies. You can fellowship with God. Throughout all that you're going through, you have fellowship with God because of what Jesus has borne for you. As we close, I want to conclude with a few practical ways we can enjoy this fellowship with God that Jesus gave us. First, we can enjoy this fellowship with God by marveling at God's love in the gospel. Marvel at God's love in the gospel. Imagine the wonder that these Israelites on Mount Sinai had. There in the wilderness, a wasteland, God creates this kind of portal to heaven, a way back to Eden. Almost like the wardrobe that Lucy discovers in the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia, a way into Aslan's country. But this isn't a fantasy story. It's real. Because of his love, God desires fellowship with you, Christian. This is good news. God has called you in Christ and he's brought you close. So fill your heart with wonder at Jesus, the tabernacle. Jesus, the high priest. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. Jesus, the perfect worshiper. Because of Jesus' perfection, we can know and worship God who made us. So fellowship with your holy God by marveling at God's love to you in Christ. This kind of fellowship, marveling at God's love in Christ, this is really what the church is all about. This is kind of mission number one. We're those people who gather together to marvel at God's love to us in Christ. As we're united to Christ, we become another kind of tabernacle, a dwelling place for God through Christ on earth. This is Paul's argument in Ephesians 3. And he prays that the church may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So as we live together in the love of Christ, we are filled with all the fullness of God just like the glory of God filling that tabernacle on Mount Sinai. 
we can most fully enjoy fellowship with God as we marvel together at Christ's love. When we do this, the glory of God blazes brightly from us, the dwelling place of God. By God's grace, I hope this is what's happening even now as we're here worshiping together, as we gather for corporate worship. We hear God's word and sing praises to him and pray we are fellowshipping with our holy God, marveling at his love for us in Christ. We call the Lord's Supper communion for this very reason. We're fellowshipping with God and each other, marveling at God's love together. I think that probably all makes sense to us. We kind of understand that's what worship is. I think there might be other parts of our our lives that we we don't think of as fellowship with God. And so one major area that encompasses the whole Christian life is pursuing holiness. We can fellowship with God by pursuing holiness. Earlier I said that light is an important symbol of fellowship with God, right? The, The light of that menorah in the holy place shines on the showbread. It's a symbol of God's presence. The light of God's glory and grace shines upon us in the benediction. Well, listen to 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us of all sin. That's tabernacle theology applied to us. We can enjoy fellowship with God and with each other by walking in God's light, in the light of Christ. And so we fellowship with God by imitating him. We fellowship with God by imitating the loving sacrifice of Jesus. So Christian dads and husbands, fellowship with God by living with your wife in a gentle way, by leading your family as a servant. Christian moms, you can fellowship with God when by faith you lay down your life for your kids. Christian worker, you fellowship with God when you work to please God and not just your boss or your other co-workers. Christians who are suffering, you fellowship with God by continuing to trust him even when there's no immediate sign of relief. Christian neighbor, You can fellowship with your holy God by serving that neighbor in need. We can fellowship with Christ by sharing the gospel, especially so when we're persecuted for Christ's sake. These calls to holy obedience, they're not burdens. For Christians, this is like the sun's warmth. We walk in the light of God's fellowship by being holy as God is holy. That's what Leviticus is calling us to. 